Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for the individuals that are here and that you're guiding lead us through this chapter that we're looking at and that your Holy Spirit will teach us what you would have us to learn from this. We just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew chapter 18, starting at verse 7. Woe unto the world because of offenses, for it must needs that the offense come, but woe to that man by whom the offense comes. Wherefore, if your hand or your foot offend you, cut them off and cast them from you. It is better for you to enter into life halt and maimed rather than having two hands and two feet and be cast into everlasting fire. And if your eye offends you, pluck it out and cast it from you, for it is better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes and be cast into hellfire. All right, so last week we talked about the offense of children, how Jesus says don't offend the young, even the littlest of children. And remember that came from the disciples saying, who will be the greatest in heaven in the kingdom? And Jesus took the child and said, you've got to be like this child in your belief. And then he goes, he says, woe or alas unto the world because of the offenses, of the stumbling blocks. And how many times do we see, have stumbling blocks thrown in our path? And worse yet, how many times do maybe we put a stumbling block in somebody else's path? And Jesus says, woe to that person. You know, and uh, kind of an interesting, and this next sentence is, for it must needs that offenses come. You know, how many times have you been told or heard some pastor say, you know, get, say, get, come to Jesus and everything's going to be okay, everything's going to be good? Uh, it's a very sad message because it's not the message that Jesus taught. He said that offenses, stumbling blocks, hard times were going to come by necessity. Why is it a necessity? Well, first off, man is sinful. And we have a sin nature, which means we are going to do things that are wrong. You know, and I love it when I talk to people and they go, well, if God was really all-powerful, he'd stop all bad things from happening to, any, to people. And I go, well, that is probably true. God could do that. Do you want him to? Okay. And they'll always say yes. They want God to stop all bad things from happening to people. And I'm going, okay, well, pray that God will stop you from doing what you want to do. And everybody will stop at that point. Nobody wants to give up their right to do something wrong, but they want God to stop people from having bad things happen to them. And the two are at odds with each other. God could stop all bad things from happening. How would he do it? Take away our free will. And because Adam and Eve sinned, the whole world is in punishment. And the whole world goes against it. And that doesn't mean every time something bad happens to somebody, it's a judgment on them. And, or a judgment on somebody else. It's a judgment on the world as a whole. And reaping and sowing. Bad is done and bad will be sown. And sometimes it affects people who have no part in what caused it. And this happens when a leader, whether it's a family, a pastor, the government, if they do something wrong and they lead their governed area astray, the people under them may suffer because of the leader doing the wrong thing. Which is why leaders have to be as godly as they can because they're affecting more than just themselves. And this is, we see it all the time in, in our government. The more our government gets evil, the more we're seeing our world get evil. Now, a lot of people will tell you, well, it's the world getting evil and the government that's getting evil in, as a consequence. And there may be a little bit about that. But 
if they were just doing their job and punishing evil, there wouldn't be as much evil going on. But instead, what are they doing? They're accepting it, you know, saying it's okay, and, and encouraging it in many cases. And here we see Jesus saying, bad things are going to happen. Then we have our problem of our own nature. We have the pride of life, the pride of the, uh, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. We have three areas within our own self that just want to do bad things. And that's going to cause bad to happen to us and to others because we do wrong. And it's something as simple as, you know, you go out and get drunk one night and hit somebody. And, you know, you, you went out, you did wrong, and somebody else paid the consequences, and you're going to pay consequences for a long time because of your bad choice. Or maybe it's as simple as you just wreck your vehicle and you suffer broken bones and, and pains for the rest of your life because of a decision to make the wrong decision. Uh, we have all these people that are going out and having sex all the time, and then they abort the children that are the, you know, the consequence of that action, or keep them and, and mistreat them because they weren't, didn't want one in the first place. Either way, the child is suffering. And it's a very sad thing that bad things happen. And then Jesus says, but woe to the man who causes the offense. He goes, bad things are going to happen, but there are consequences. And I say this all the time. We have the right to do whatever we want. We can go out and sin, but there is always consequences for every action. Good or bad, there's consequences. Now, we don't usually think of the good things as being consequences, but they're still not just as much a consequence. It's just a consequence we like. You know, when I do good things and I get rewarded, I like that consequence, but it's still a consequence. When I do something wrong and I get a consequence, I don't like it. There's always a consequence to pay for every action that we do. Every thought that we do has a consequence. And this is what Jesus says, woe to the person who, does, who brings this offense about. And offense is a, is a stumbling block. Then he goes into a very practical, if your hand or foot offends you, or gives you a stumbling block, cut it off. Cast it from you. It is better to enter into the kingdom maimed than into life, uh, uh, life maimed and halt rather than to the, die and be cast into the everlasting fire. Now, does that mean he literally wants us to cut it off? Well, if it's that bad, yes. In most cases, no. Because hands and feet represent what I do and where I walk. And he says, cut off the things you're doing that are wrong and, and, the, and the walk that you're doing wrong. And this is a pretty simple thing in many cases. How many times do you find yourself doing wrong and you think about, what was I watching on TV? Who was I hanging out with? Where was I? And you go, wow, if I wasn't with this particular person, every time I'm with this person, I do something wrong. Well, you can still have plenty of problems by yourself because then you still have the problem with what am I watching? What am I entertaining myself? What, what is my thought life getting into? You know, I'm not just using a person. It could be I spent all my night with the TV and all of a sudden I'm starting to think about some really strange thoughts because of the movie. You know, I watched uh, Fifty Shades of Grey and now I'm having sexual thoughts all you know, about everybody and I don't even understand where they came from. Well, I came from watching a dumb movie in the first place. You know, uh, you know, watching things that bring the wrong thought patterns into us. And this is what I said. By coming to church, coming to Bible studies, hanging out with God's people, will that keep you from doing sin? 
Well, it won't prevent you from having sin, but it'll make things easier because hopefully you're with other people that are trying not to sin. Whereas if you're going out and hanging out with the guys or the, or the girls at the bar, you're going to end up doing something dumb. You know, it's just going to happen because that's what they're there for. You know, they go to the bar, what, to either get drunk or pick up somebody. You know, most people say, well, I'm just going there to have a good time. Well, what's, how do you define good time? You know, yeah, you're not going there for the right kind of time. Uh, you know, you're hanging out with people that are going to lead you astray, give you bad advice. And if you're in church, you're hearing God's word, you're with God's people, you're more likely <laughs> to do the right godly items and right things. And this is what he's saying. If you're doing something that is the wrong walk and the wrong actions, stop doing them. Cut it off and do something else. It's better to stop whatever fun you think you're having and live rather than to, to fall into sin and be judged. And then I love this one because this one, he says, then to be cast into everlasting fire. Jesus taught very clearly that hell was eternal. All right? We have several, even Christian groups that want to believe in annihilation, that once we die, God judges you for a short time. You know, if you die in your sins, you're judged for a very short time, and then you're gone. You don't have, you don't have, eternal, you know, you don't have eternal death in this case. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses are one of that group, that God, God is so loving and kind, he would never punish people for eternity. So therefore, when you die, if you're not one of his, you're, you're gone. You cease to exist. That is not what the Bible teaches. Many places, and Jesus very clearly taught everlasting fire in the punishment. And this isn't just for the ultra-bad. This is for anybody who rejects him. And there are several places where it talks about everlasting punishment. We as human beings are created as eternal future beings, not eternal past, but we have a beginning and we have no end. And our end will be never, and we choose where we're going to spend that eternity. And it's quite a serious thing we look at. My little short time on this world determines my place for eternity. And very critical when you think about that. You know, let's say you lived a long time. You lived a thousand years like the patriarchs did in, in the beginning. Lived a thousand years. What's a thousand years to a, to a quintillion years in, in plus <laughs> in heaven or hell? An eternal punishment? That is, it sounds awful and it is, but God says that's what you've chosen. You're going to get what you choose. And then he goes, if your eye offends you, your, your sense of knowledge, you, how we take in knowledge, if it offends you, plug it out, for it is better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes and be cast into hellfire. And this word here is Gehenna. And Gehenna was the dump outside of Jerusalem where they kept a fire burning all the time, night and day, and they just loaded the city trash and dung and dead animals and anything that was garbage they threw on this fire. And it burned day and night. And you didn't want to get downwind from it. Because as you know, fires, especially when they're burning animals and anything else, it stinks. You know, but Jesus says, you know, it's eternal, it's everlasting, and it is fire. And whether it's literal fire or spiritual, some kind of spiritual fire, I don't know, but everything describes it as fire. The lake of fire the, the, is the final, ultimate destination. Hell is a temporary fire that they're cast into until they're brought before judgment. And then after the white throne judgment, they're cast into the lake of fire where it's everlasting. 
and the lake of fire was created for Lucifer and the fallen angels, not for man, but when man fell, we made it our destination without Christ. So we want to keep this. This is why it's so serious for us to share the gospel, because the alternative is eternal damnation. Uh, and it says in another verse where the worm turns, and most people, and myself included, believe that's the conscience. For the eternity, their conscience is going to say, you got what you deserve. You, you should have done this, because then when they stand before the white throne, judge, God's going to show them every time they denied Jesus, every time they made the decision against God, and that'll be the last thing they see before they're thrown into the lake of fire, and they'll be reminded, I deserve this. And have you ever been punished knowing that you deserve it? Doesn't that tend to make it worse to you? It's one thing when you're, you just feel I'm being misused. I really didn't deserve this. It's not that big a deal. But when you know you deserve the punishment, it's a lot harder to, to deal with. You know, because you're now, now you're telling yourself, I shouldn't have done that. I really shouldn't have done that. I really shouldn't have done that. And you're adding to the punishment. And this is what Jesus says. If you're walking in a sinful life, stop doing it. Okay? If you have bad thoughts, stop having the bad thoughts. How do we stop having the bad thoughts? We get new thoughts in, our, in their place. We use the scripture. We start thinking about the things we're supposed to think. We start meditating on God's word. And we start changing who we are by how we think. Because it's said that out of the treasure of our heart, we speak, we act. And whatever we're filling our brain with is what we're going to do. And we know that happens. You know, Start filling your mind with a bunch of garbage on television and TV and then, then wonder where the language and words that you're speaking are coming from. And you start thinking about it and going, oh, you know, I watched a whole bunch of TV this last week. I binge watched this show and, and these are the words they used on that show. And we just, it comes out. It's what's got stuck into us. You know, if we're going to binge anything, let's binge on God's word. Let's binge on teaching and get our minds changed and altered. Okay, say verse 10. Take heed you that, despise, that you despise not these little ones, for I say unto you that in heaven their angels do always behold the face of my Father which is in heaven. For the Son of Man is come to save that which was lost. How think you, if a man have a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety and nine and go into the mountains and seek them that are the one that is astray? And if so, when he finds it, verily I say unto you, he rejoices more for that sheep than the ninety-nine which went not astray. Even so is not the will of your Father which is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. So he's back to the children. He says, don't despise, don't ignore, don't reject one of these little ones. And we talked about how it's not just actual little children, though that's who he's talking about specifically, but it can be anybody who's young in Christ that is new, new to Christ. And he says, don't despise them. Don't reject them because, and, and this is, it says, that in heaven the angels do always behold, the, their angels do always behold the face of the Father which is in heaven. This is one of the verses that people will use to say that we have guardian angels, especially children. Now, most of it, including this one, is fairly weak. This one, they'll point to verses like uh, Hebrews four, uh, 14 and say, here, this one says, God sends ministering angels to guard us. Well, that doesn't mean that we have an angel that is specifically ours. They'll point to Psalm uh, 92 where it talks about ministering angels. Uh, they'll point even to Daniel 10, 
and, uh, and Daniel 12, where, where it's very clear that nations have angels over them, because Daniel says that the prince of Persia tried to prevent, you know, or Gabriel says, the prince of Persia tried to keep me from getting to you. I've been, it's taken me this long to get to you, and I had to call for help, or Michael called him Gabriel. Uh, so we know that nations have angels that are overseeing them. So it is possible that people do. But there's no absolute verse <laughs> that says that. Uh, it is clear that God will send angels if we need help. But it's not necessarily true or untrue that we each have a particular angel assigned to us. Uh, my wife used to joke about when uh, we had a car where the tie rod went out and she, was made, she made uh, three turns with her with a car with no front tie rod. If you know anything about cars, you cannot turn the car without a tie rod. And yet we know she made three turns because we watched where the, where the tie rod gouged the road for each of these turns. And she used to joke, I'll know my angel when I see him. You'll be covered with grease. Uh, you know, it's a comforting thought to think that there's an angel assigned to us all the time. And there probably are some angels. It might be more likely that God assigns angels to each of the demons. Because there's two to one. He can send two angels against every demon out there and, and, and not run out. And not, and not run out. So it's possible he just says, okay, wherever that demon goes, you two follow. I want to know what they're, you know, I know what they're doing, but you guys protect my children. Who knows how, it, how it's done. But God in Hebrews does tell us that he sends ministering angels to help us. And that is a great comforting thought because we think about this. How strong are angels? A lot stronger than we are anyway. You know, how strong are the demons and Satan? I love it when people think that, oh, I can, I can, stand, up against, I can stand up against demons and, and, and the bad that they're going. Even if they weren't any stronger, they're a lot smarter because they've had at least six, 7,000 years of existence to get smart. And even when he met Adam and Eve, who are probably the smartest people that ever existed because they were initially given the brains and taught directly by God, he still outsmarted them. And we think we can stand up against them? What foolishness. We can only stand, stay hidden in Christ. And that's why we want to stay hidden in Christ. Because we can't stand up against this Satan. And that's why we stay in Christ and we will be able to withstand every, all, the, all the attacks of the enemy. So I bring this up not to argue for or against guardian angels. It's just the Bible is unclear. We don't know. Uh, but he does say that these angels that are watching over these little ones have access access to the throne room. And this is true if you think about, well, further back, you know, somewhat even today, but back in the days of royalty, the, the nurse or the caregiver, the tutor of the children of the king, the prince and princesses, had access to the king that had unwarranted, un nobody else had access to the king like their, their keeper did. Because if they got hurt, immediately to the king, they would have immediate access. If they had to talk to the king about the behavior, good or bad, about the children, immediately to the king. They were on a very familiar basis with the, with the children. You know, they, were, they really weren't servants. Even though the prince and princess had the authority to kick most people out, they couldn't tell their tutor or their, or their governess, you know, you get out of here. No, nope, I'm in charge of you. You are under me. Uh, for now. Until you're older, until you are old enough to actually rule, I'm the one that rules, not you. <laughs> and Paul talks about this, how the law was a tutor to us to bring us to God. 
It taught us our sin. It controlled us. It, it couldn't be told to go away until we came of age and came to Jesus Christ. And then we were under grace and not the law because we'd learned to behave and do what we were supposed to and we were under Jesus' direct authority and the law brought us to him. And so this whole thing, he says, these angels have access to God. Access to God. Anybody watching us, if there are guardian angels, our guardian angels would have access to God. Well, no, you know, sorry to tell you this, uh, uh, God, but uh, they're messing up again. <laughs> what would you like me to do? Uh, they're getting kind of cocky again. What would you like us to, what do you want to allow, have us allow happening here? You know, that kind of access. Very familiar. You know, we got this problem. <laughs> Your, your, your child, your children are at it again. <laughs> might even be, you know what, they really did a good thing. You'd really be proud of what they did yesterday. Might be, might be a little that once in a while, but usually it's going to be, you know, you know what they've done this time. <laughs> but we just bring this up, and I'm going to let you know, this is probably the primary verse that people will use to prove guardian angels. Because it's the closest we have of anyone that says that we have an angel that's directly assigned to us. Uh, but it says, for the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. This is Jesus saying, why am I here? I'm to save the lost. Rescue, snatch out, snatch away the lost. And this is Jesus' whole purpose. Until the day in heaven, when he starts opening the seventh seal of heaven, Jesus' goal is to save the lost and to rescue when he opens the seventh seal, if you remember the book of Revelation, he opens the seventh seal and there's silence in heaven for the space of an hour or half hour. Why? There goes the NIV again. I have no verse 11. You have no verse 11? Well, they try to say that these weren't in, that these weren't in some manuscripts. Now, they'll tell you they're the oldest manuscripts. Whether they are or not is another story. Um, I don't like the idea that they drop it off. Is this one... Is it critical that this one's lost in one sense? No, because this is said in other places. Jesus came to save the lost. It says, for the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. And then he goes right into the story of the lost sheep. So, I mean, this is the, the forerunning, the foreshadowing of the, what he's getting ready to say. Again, they will make the argument that some scribe put this in to give you a foreshadowing of what was coming. And as I say, in one sense, it's not critical that this is not there because it is in other verses that he came to save the lost. But I think it's, it's sad that they're taking things away arbitrarily without any really good, strong proof. Uh, because it takes away from what Jesus has done. He came to save the lost. And he's reminding his disciples. Remember, we, a couple of chapters back, he goes, and from this time he foretold his death and resurrection. This is part of this. I came not to set the kingdom up that you think I'm coming to set up. I came to save the lost. And they had some kind of thought process there. Or else they would have uh, just continued on the number you sequentially. Yeah. They're, leaving out. they're leaving it out so that somebody, when, they, when they're in a Bible study with somebody using a King James Bible or who re reads that Bible, they go, oh, I don't have, oh, it told me they didn't have because the numbering is there. But you don't even have a footnote. Some manuscripts don't include this. Yeah, because they're referring you to the fact that this statement is other places, which is why they feel free to reject it. Uh, I don't understand it. I don't understand what their logic is behind it. And it, NIV is the worst offender of it, but the other newer versions are doing the same thing. 
they're saying these are the newer versions and they're doing a great disservice because they're making a great distrust in the word of God in people's minds because they go oh I can't trust it because this one says it's not there and that one says it is which one's right especially when it's been there for for centuries uh, to all of a sudden say well this one doesn't belong because we've got this newer newer uh, version of the Bible I can't personally see where it hurt to put it in there I think there's nothing controversial they should have left it there and then if they wanted to footnote it some manuscripts don't include this verse uh, which would have been a better way to handle it and less controversial but I believe Satan had his hand in this creation of doing it the way they did it because it does it shakes a lot of people's belief you know how can I trust God's word if you guys can't even agree on what belongs there and what doesn't belong there and so it would be much better for them to just footnote it and say some menu some of the newer manuscripts don't have this instead of the other way around and listening it down at the bottom Satan is trying hard to get people to distrust the Word of God and this is just they and I'm not saying they did it on purpose with bad motive I'm just saying Satan is using their they did in a really rough way for us in the church and there's things where they just did a bad job translating including the new New King James and many of these other versions and unfortunately I'm not going to be too critical of them because I speak German to a small degree more than I used you know in the past and I do now it's not easy to translate if you speak another language you know how hard it can be to translate the something into another language because you, you've got to think about what you're saying you've got to change idioms you've got to figure out do I want to keep the words in the same order or not and that's a big deal the NASB is a very well translated Bible the only thing that make, makes it very hard to read is they left the words in the order that the Greek words are in which means you might have the verb first and then you have the the, uh, the, the predicate and then you have the subject at the end and that's not how we read sentences in English you see a lot of translators on television that are translating for government officials and such they seem like they're second class and they're having such a hard time getting through it they're actually doing a great job they're doing a great job probably because they're dealing with words that they don't always necessarily wear and they've got to make sure they get the intent spoken correctly and we're going to see if we get that far we're going to see some idioms right here that we have to deal with that don't necessarily make sense until we understand how the Jewish people understood them and they're just translated straight out in English it would be like try to translate somebody saying that you got so sunburnt you look like a lobster which is kind of an interesting statement because the only time a lobster looks red is when it's been boiled in boiling water before that it's green or brown you know uh, so you're, you're, you're saying you look like a cooked lobster even though we didn't say cooked in there and so you have to then figure out how do I translate this how do you translate it in a language that may not even know what a lobster is okay uh, all these different things that come into translation it's not an easy for somebody who doesn't understand those terms it would be what are you talking about you know, lobster that crawls around in the bottom of the ocean what's that got to do with being sunburnt you know I'm sure that the Bedouins in, in the Middle East have some other term for being sunburnt. It probably has nothing to do with a crab. It probably says you forgot to put your turban on or something, you know. I mean, I'm only guessing. Don't take me literal. And people would understand that. That translation is not easy. So when we come across these things, I'm not saying that they did it on purpose, that they did even a bad job, but it's unfortunate. You know, that does on, shows the strength of a demon. Because there's what normally at least a dozen theological experts 
If I recall correctly, there were 120 men that did the, King, the NIV. Some of them were Greek scholars, some were Hebrew scholars, but they all were not Christian, and that's a sad thing. And every once in a while, you come apart that, across the part that the guy obviously did not believe in the supernatural. It's the biggest question. Why would you get somebody who wasn't a Christian to translate? And because all he did was look at their, their scholarship. Oh, they were definitely scholars. I mean, I'm not saying they weren't scholars. They, they were people who understood the language very well. But because they had a preconceived idea that the supernatural does not exist and God does not exist and miracles do not exist, they basically write them out of their translations. And uh, several places. And the Old Testament is probably the worst. The New Testament is pretty good, mostly. Everyone always has this idea that this is the most perfect written book that there ever was. You know? I, I think everyone believes that. Well, the Bible is in its original form. Well, this is why when you listen to verbal plenary inspiration, which is what, the, what we believe in, that God spoke it, and it was written down the way he wanted, we're referring to the original copies of the scriptures and the original language. Because any translation starts to lose effectiveness for the most part. And part of it is as simple as most Greek and Hebrew words, you will hear people tell you that it's a very precise language and they mean exactly what they say. No, most of them have four or five definitions, but their mentality was that all those definitions could be right at the same time. How do you translate that? The best one for that type of translation is the Amplified Bible, which will give you all five translations of the word. And Hebrew's not that far off. And Hebrew has lots of word pictures. They'll give you a word and there's a picture behind it. And my favorite word picture is, I can't remember where, where in the scriptures, but it's the word here. And usually when you see the word here in the Old Testament, it's, it's the connotation is hear and obey. But there's one particular word for hear, and the word picture behind it is like a dog hearing its master's voice. And anybody who's had a dog, you know, especially if it wasn't your dog, you know, it was your dog, but it was, you know, dad's dog or something. And the car drives up, the, dad's, the dad drives in, and all of a sudden those ears perk up. I think I, hear, I think I hear the right car. There's a crunching sound. Yep, that's definitely his. And then the, the ears perk up, the tail starts to wag, and eventually they'll get up, go to the door, and they're right there to greet the master. How do you translate that? You know, the word literally is here. But you're going to write a paragraph to tell you how you're supposed to be hearing, to translate it into English. You know, hear like the dog, hearing his master's voice and getting excited about the master coming home. Okay, literally the word means here. By putting the word here, you're okay. You've, you've, you've translated it correctly, but you've lost a lot in the translation. And this is what we find when we go through the scriptures. There's many places where there's a picture behind the word that is more powerful, which is why I, I want to teach people how do you use some of these tools to find these pictures behind the words and be able to understand them. Because when you're studying in the Greek and the Hebrew, you're doing a much better job understanding. It's very important for us to be, am I reading a translation that's trustworthy and can I trust it? And that's why I said, I gave up on the NIV because I got to a place where I no longer trusted it. But I used it for 10 years. It's a wonderful Bible just to read. And sometimes I'll, I've, got a King, I've got an NIV at home and sometimes I'll read it just for the sake of what does it say? Because sometimes it'll bring out a very interesting point that I don't see in the King James. 
Most of my study time goes into trying to find out what the Greek and the Hebrew says because I want to get the power. I want to know what does it say in its origin? What is the word picture behind it? small part of this whole thing. Daniel is written in Aramaic for the most part. That's it. The beginning of Daniel is written in, in Hebrew. The end of it is written in Hebrew. And there's a small part, especially where Nebuchadnezzar writes, because Nebuchadnezzar is a writer within the book of Daniel, is written in Aramaic. And a little bit of it, Daniel is in Aramaic. Because Daniel got to be very proficient in Aramaic, being the, the leader. So other than that, it's written in Hebrew and, and Greek. Having said that, believe and understand that God will move you to whatever Bible you're ready to, to understand. One of the worst translated paraphrases out there was good news for modern man. But during the Jesus movement, thousands if not millions of especially hippies got saved using the good news for modern man. Okay, terrible translation, awful version of the Bible. But people got saved. And afterwards, most of them left stopped reading the good news for modern man because they're going, oh, we need something deeper. We need something more with some teeth to it. And they moved on into other versions of the Bible at that time, mostly King James, and started studying the King James. God will move you on when it's time. Like I said, I spent 10 years reading the NIV, and then there was a point where God says, I think it's time to move you on. <laughs> Let's get you. You're going back to the King James anyway. You know, I was going back to the King James anyway, and the, and the Greek and the Hebrew usually match the King James. So I said, oh, I'm just going to go back to the King James and start doing the King James. Like I said, I still have an NIV. I read it. I read my wife's Amplified once in a while. You know, the other versions, the easy to read versions are not necessarily bad. They bring things out that you, you know, wouldn't necessarily get otherwise. But just be aware, you're reading a version that has, that's been in some ways watered down. The NIV is written for a fourth grade level like all books and, and media this day. It was written at a newspaper level, which is fourth grade. King James Bible is more of a high school level reading. It's harder to read, and I grant it, it's harder to read. And if people are having a hard time reading, read an NIV, read a, uh, you know, one of the other versions, the Messenger Bible, you know, until you get God moving you on. Read, you know, because people will say, what's the best version of the Bible? And my answer is very simply, the one you'll read. All right. You may have the best translated version of the Bible sitting in front of you, but if you look at it and say it's too complicated, I can't read it, you might as well have a piece of junk in front of you because it's not, if you're not going to read it or study it, it doesn't do you a bit of good. If all you can handle is the Messenger Bible and it's a paraphrase in, in today's English at about a third grade level, and that's all you can read, go for it. When, you, when God moves you out, you know, he'll let you know when it's time to move into something deeper. And I'm not going to criticize people for wanting to read something that's simple, easy to read. You've got to work at reading the King James. It's, it's not something that you can just throw at anybody and say, here, read this in our day and age, because it literally is written at a level that is good for high school. It's just like if you re try to read the Federalist Papers, which the Founding Fathers wrote in the newspaper to defend the Constitution and people will go, well, they're very hard to read and I go, and, th and one guy goes, of course they're hard to read. They were written for the average fourth grader in, in 1700. And we've already talked about that, you know, the entrance exam to go into high school, to go to high school, to go past sixth grade, most college students could not pass today. And that was just to continue going to school. 
and they want to talk about how smart we are and how dumb they were. We can't pass their entrance exam to high school and never mind their entrance exam to go to college. Okay, and we want to talk about how dumb they were and how unintelligent they were. They understood language very well. And so King James is written at a higher level. People don't understand it. I'm not going to say, well, you've got to go into the King James because it's the best. I like the King James. I like the fact that most of the time it is accurate with what I study. And note even there, I say most of the time. The Ten Commandments say in the King James says, you shall not murder. It is one of the places where the NIV and the new versions have got it right. Uh, you shall not murder, not you shall not kill. Because the word in Hebrew is literally murder. And all murder is killing, but not all killing is murder. All right? So there's a big difference between those two words. And so we need to understand that the ultimate place for us to get to if we're going to study God's word strongly is to learn to go back into the Greek and the Hebrew. And for us here in America, it's real easy. We've got Strong's Concordances, which is have a concordance of the Hebrew and Greek words in the back. We've got all kinds of lexicons that we can get to. They're keyed to the Strong's Concordance. All you have to do is go find out what number it is in the Strong's and go into the book and find, and find the word and what it means. And we've got book after book after book that just give you language help, not even commentary help, but just language help. And when we do the How to Study the Bible, which we're going to do on Saturdays after I get back from my vacation, <laughs> and the evangelism class will be over, we'll go into how to use these tools and, and where to get the tools and how to, how to do some of these things. Because I think it's important that we know how to find out what the Word says. And ultimately, the Holy Spirit is our main teacher. He's going to tell you what it means anyway. If you really want to know, in spite of whatever your translation says, and you go to God and you say, God, I want you to help me understand this, the Holy Spirit will tell you what it means. The good thing about being able to use the tools is now, uh, then you can go back and prove that the Holy Spirit knew what he was talking about. Not that you need to prove it, but you know, now I can prove what I knew, what the Holy Spirit told me as a teenager when I would ask him, God, I just don't understand this. I got one church saying this, another church saying this, what's it mean? What's it mean? The Holy Spirit would give me what it meant. And then I was able to, later on, when I went to Bible college and learned how to use these tools, I'm going, oh, you know what? The Holy Spirit knew what he was talking about. He told me the right answer. Now I can prove it, though. It's not just this is what, I, this is what the Holy Spirit taught me, but this is why it's true. And that's an important place to be able to get to. Why do I believe what I believe? Not just because I have faith that the Holy Spirit taught me, and that's, that's a good place to be as long as you did listen to the Holy Spirit. But to be able to say, this word means this, this word means this, and this, and this is why I believe this way. Very important to do. And to be able to go through the Bible and say, God, this is what you've taught. All right, back on track here. <laughs> uh, verse 12, how do you think if a man lose, have a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 and go into the mountains and seek the one that he lost? And if so be that he find it, verily I say unto you, he rejoices more in that sheep than in the 99 that went not astray. This is the true heart of somebody who owns something precious. If they lose one of them, you know, whatever it might be, uh, this one doesn't go into the one, woman who lost a coin and, and the other things that, are, that another, another one goes into. But if you lose something that's important to you, don't you tear the house upside down, you backtrack your steps, you're, you're going to go, I am going to find this 
thing that I lost. And he says, if you lost just one sheep, you got 99 of them, but you go find the one that's lost. Why? Because you're the shepherd. You love it. You, you care for it. You, you're, it's something that you really honestly want. And then this is, next verse is kind of troubling. And if he finds it, verily I say unto you, he rejoices more in that sheep than the 99 that did not go astray. Now, we want to be careful about this. This is not teaching that when people go and do bad things, that, they're more, that God loves them more than he loves the 99. Okay? The 99 are still loved. All right? Still greatly loved. And actually, they're even, in one sense, more loved because they're doing what's right. But the one that cost him everything to go find, there's a special affinity between that. Like, I, okay, lamb, you're going to stay here with me. Now, I haven't been able to find it, but I've, I've read it in several places, and I can't find the source. But they say that when a shepherd in the Middle East goes and gets a wayward lamb that keeps getting lost, literally keeps getting lost, that they will get the lamb and they'll break his legs and carry him everywhere they go, teaching them to stay with the shepherd. And when they finally get their legs fixed, then that lamb does not leave the shepherd's side. It's like, okay, the, the consequences of leaving the shepherd's sides are pretty severe. Now, I have read this in several places. I've heard it, I've seen it referenced by several pastors. Heard it, I know that uh, Chuck Smith taught it because all of his guys teach it. <laughs> that, that come from Calvary Chapel and under him. Now, I have not found any place outside of just references to it to find out. But in one sense, it does make sense that you're gonna listen to the heart. You know, you, you always wanna run away. I'm gonna make you it so you can't run away. And you're going to be totally dependent on me for, for three, four, five, six weeks, whatever it takes for the lamb's legs to, to heal. I'm going to have to feed you. I'm going to have to nurture you. I'm going to have to take you everywhere we go. And that's where you see the picture of the lamb draped across the shepherd's shoulders. So this picture has been out there for a long time. So I have, think it has a basis in truth, but I'm just hedging that because I don't know. I've heard it said so many times, but I don't, I've never read a source document that says that. But you can picture it doing it. Jesus, when we go astray, punishes us. And it would almost be like, I'm going to make it so you have to fully depend on me and not go astray. When we have somebody that's an errant child, we tend to really love that child. We get frustrated by that child. But we also love that child. And, it, and it's exhausting because we have to do so much to keep them on the straight and, straight and narrow. And we love that child. It's not that we love our obedient children less. Matter of fact, we're wishing that the disobedient child was more like those ones that we didn't have to go chasing. But there is, a, in one sense, a deeper love. I'm having to chase you. It's costing me something to keep you on the path. And this is what he's saying. He's not saying the 99 are, are less loved. They're not loved. He's just saying there is a special bond because he had to go get this one. He had to rescue him. And there's a special bond between that person and the one who rescues them. And this is true even in Christianity. Those who have been saved most or all their life, who did not go into sin, you know, didn't do any real big sins, a lot of times they don't have as much love for Jesus as those who have been pulled from the pits of, of hell. Now the ones who have been pulled from the pits of hell wish they had the testimony of the one who hasn't done anything. But you know, sometimes you kind of feel like, well, I'm not that bad, you know, there's no big deal. And been there, done that myself, you know, God, I didn't go into drugs and alcohol and all these other things, you know, I'm just, you know, what, you know, at one point I'm going, what's my testimony, you know, who, who cares about my testimony, it's just, you know, 
I, I've done things right. And I actually said this one time to somebody who gave a testimony in front of the church, and I would just have to, I go, you have a wonderful testimony, and I don't have anything, and he goes, stop. <laughs> he goes, never belittle your testimony, because all of us who have this, what you think is this wonderful testimony would give it all up to have not gone through the pain that we had to go through to do it. And I needed to hear that. I needed to hear that statement that, no, you are, you know, you are the, you are the one we want. <laughs> You know, we wish we had your testimony that we didn't have to go through all this. We'd give up this touring of the churches, telling the people about how great God is because he redeemed us if we didn't have to go through all the pain that we're not talking about. And this is critical. Jesus says he'd gone after the sheep that were lost, and that sheep was going to know that, the, this, that they were taken from something. The 99 are just kind of, well, whatever. <laughs> you know, and, and we've talked about this. Sheep are dumb. Sheep are the dumbest animal out there, probably. Uh, and I told you about my friend. He had, to, he had about uh, eight sheep in little tiny hill, little tiny hill in their pasture. And every once in a while, one of the sheep would get behind the hill and not see the rest of the sheep. He's only two feet away from going. If he'd walked another two feet, he'd see the other sheep. But as soon as he couldn't see the sheep, he would be baying and buying, like, you know, I'm in trouble, help me, I can't. And he'd have to get up and go rescue the sheep and walk the sheep around the corner. Here they are. You couldn't even walk back to see him. You saw him just one step further, and you walked two one step further, and you can't see him, you can't walk backwards. This is the way sheep are. When God compares us to sheep, he is not being kind to compare us to sheep. Verse 15. Moreover, if your brother shall trespass against you, go unto him and, and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he hear you, and you, you have gained a brother. But if he will not hear you, take with you one or two more, and at the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto you as a heathen man and, not, and as a publican. Verily I say unto you, whatsoever you shall bind on earth shall you be bound in heaven, and whatsoever shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say unto you that if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask it shall be done unto them for my father which is in heaven and where there are two or three are gathered together in my name there am I in the midst of them so he says if somebody sins against you alright and this is to do miss the mark you know they, they harm you in some way you're to go to them how many people do not go to somebody that does something wrong to them they'll end up talking to everybody but the person who's done something wrong to them. Because we are, as a general rule, we do not like confrontation. You know, we do not like to go up to the person and say, you know, what you said really hurt my feelings, or what you did hurt my feelings. You, you coming into my house and taking everything I belong really hurt my feelings and my finances. You know, we don't usually go to the person who has done it to talk to them. But Jesus says, if they've hurt you, you go talk to them alone. And if they, if they confess and, and repent, you've won a brother. You've won, you've won somebody to be a close friend. But he says, if they will not repent when you come to them alone, take two or three people with you. So there's a witness that you have tried to clear the air. Now, again, one of the things I have said, it's very important on this, pray for the person first before you go talk to them. And make sure you're doing it in love. Because how many of you have had somebody 
you know, trying to tell you how bad you were, but it's more of an accusing rather than trying to, to clear the air. You know, you were terrible. You, you really hurt me. Uh, that kind of attitude is not going to help clear the air. You're just going to put them on the defensive. But he says, with two or three you go. And you just, and if they still won't do it, he says, then you can tell the church. Now, I would say that if you're going to go that far, it better be something that's pretty critically important. Not just, this person hurt my feelings. You know, if they just hurt your feelings, forgive them. <laughs> Get over it. You know, if they've actually hurt you, you go to them and deal with it. You can go to the church if need be. And it says, if they don't listen to the church, you treat them as a heathen or a publican. And both of these are strong words to the, to the Jewish mind. You teach them as a heathen, that's somebody who doesn't belong to God. You, you've kicked them out. A publican? Oh my goodness, a publican is terrible. This is a person who sold out to the Romans. They were tax collectors for Rome. Not just, usually not collecting just what they were supposed to collect. Because the way Rome collected taxes was they went to somebody and said, okay, we're going to sell you the right to collect taxes. You will have a royal, royal decree that you can collect taxes. You've got to pay us $10,000, and you get to keep whatever you collect. So if you collected $8,000, you lost $2,000. If you collected $20,000, you doubled your money. If you collected $100,000 you know, and could get away with it, then you really made out like a bandit, and that most of them tried to make out like bandits. They cheated the people, and he says, if this person will not repent, and it gets them all the way to the church, you treat them like a publican and sinner. You basically kick them out of the church and don't accept the fellowship with them until they're ready to repent. And this is what Paul said to do to the man in Corinth who was sleeping with his mother-in-law. He says, no, people, you know, Paul goes, that isn't even done by the Gentiles, and you're, and you're allowing this in the church? You kick him out of the church until he repents and let him be buffeted by Satan. And apparently he did repent later on because then he goes, then he has to chastise the church because they didn't bring him back after he repented. So he goes, when he repented, you should have brought him back, not, not kept him kicked out. So Paul had to do both directions with the, with the church in Corinth. And he goes, then he goes into verse 18, Verily I say unto you that whatsoever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever you shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This is a statement, we studied this many weeks ago now and when we talked about having the keys of the kingdom. This mindset for the Jews was taught that Jewish teachers had the authority by God to bind and loose things in heaven, make things permissible, make things not permissible. If they said it was not permissible, it was not permissible all the way to heaven. They thought, they thought pretty highly of themselves. But here Jesus is repeating it, and this is not just the first time he's repeated this. He's telling them that if you're doing it in my name and you're following my desire, there is power in what you speak. Power in binding and loosing activities in people's lives. And the cults always put some other book in front of the Bible. They'll acknowledge the Bible's important and maybe even be the word of God in most of their cases, but their books, their writings are more important. For the Catholics, it's anything the Pope has said in the, in the Catholic canon and the catechism. Uh, for the Jehovah's Witnesses, it is their, their Bible and the Watchtower. For the Mormons, it is the Book of Mormon and the Doctrine of Covenants and the Pearl of Great Price. Those are all more important importance over the Bible. And if they're in contradiction, those books are right and the Bible's wrong. And we've got to be able to understand the Bible is correct. Now, am I, if I'm an authority with God, I'm going to say this is what God says. And I'm going to bind it because he said it. Not because I say it. 
And in the Jewish at the Jewish time, they had rabbis that were just trying to say what they said. You know, there was big controversy in Jesus' day. We had two schools of thought: you could divorce your wife for any reason, or you could only divorce her for for adultery. The adultery matched with the Bible. The any reason was just somebody liking the idea that you can get rid of your wife. You know, and he literally made any reason. You come home and she burnt the burnt the dinner, you could divorce her. If she came home and she wasn't dressed up just right, you could divorce her. You, she spoke, you know, she spoke a harsh word at you, you could divorce her. That was how strong that they were working, uh, looking at it. We ought to be able to say, this is what God says. And as long as we can point to what God says, we can bind and loose anything on this world because it's what God says. And we want to be that strong. And I've already showed you, when I went to, when I was a teenager, I went to my dad, he always went to the Bible to answer my questions. This is what God says. Let's see what the Bible says. And we'd open up and he'd turn someplace in the Bible and give me the answer that I probably didn't want to hear in most cases because I was already studying the Bible. <laughs> Good counseling takes you back to the Bible. You know, I think I really should be, I think God's really telling me to marry this person. They're not, they're not a Christian. Well, then God says no. Well, how do you know that? I think he's telling me, no, God says no. He says, don't be unequally yoked. Plain, simple, end of story. God is not telling you to disobey the Bible. It's referencing everything about the the law, the law says that animals would not be unequally yoked. You didn't mix two kinds of animals on the yoke. And so he's basically saying you don't mix two kinds of people on the same yoke. But it's not just for marriage. Marriage is how we use it mostly, but we should not be unequally yoked in business. Because if I'm trying to run a Christian business and my buddy who put up most of the money is trying to run a business by the world's way of doing, and that means lie, cheat, steal, whatever, whatever he thinks it means to do business, and I'm trying to run a godly business, we're going to have problems at some point. Unequally yoked is a very strong principle that God puts out there. Your best friend should not be somebody who's not a Christian because that would be unequally yoked. The person you're hanging out with most of the time, now does that mean you can't have any friends that aren't saved? No, because you have to have somebody to witness to. But they shouldn't be your best friend. They shouldn't be the one that, if I'm going out, that, that's most likely that I'm going out with the best friend. And you don't want that to be your, an unsaved person because usually bad pulls down good. Very rarely does good pull up bad. And, and usually if you're going to be good with somebody who wants to be bad, they're going to, end, they're going to end the relationship with you sooner than later. Because they're going to go, well, you never want to have any fun. Well, you're not defining fun the way I define fun. I'm sorry. Well, and eventually they will stop <laughs> being around you, which is why many people who have been Christians for a long time don't have many unsaved friends. It's not because usually that we have no desire to have an unsaved friend. It's that the unsaved friend has no desire to be with us. Now, well, I don't want to go out drinking and picking up, picking up uh, people for the night, and you don't want to do that. Well, I'm not going to do that. Well, I'm going to go find somebody else. You know, I think we should go out and just have some fun. We'll go smash some mailboxes uh, tonight. Well, I don't think that's fun. I don't think it's a really good idea. I really don't think you should be doing it either. You know, you'll end up in federal prison doing that. Yeah. Well, I just want to have fun. You never want to have fun. You know, yeah, and I'm going kind of far-fetched on some of these, but you know what it is, and you know where you've been when people have tried to drag you into something. And the lost world, and it's bad enough when Christians try to do it to you. But hopefully, if you've got a Christian friend, they're going to be more likely to want to do godly things. And you could also be unequally yoked if you are a mature, a mature Christian and your best friend is a brand new Christian who's still trying to learn how to walk with God. That's probably better than a non-Christian. But it still has some issues because they're still trying to learn 
what's right, what's wrong, what, what do you do, how, how's a Christian live, how's a Christian not live. And so there's all these problems that go on. Not necessarily. You're better off than the non-Christian. Especially if you get married and it's a brand new Christian who's just learning, you've got somebody who's very mature. The one who's maturing is always going to put pressure on the young one to, to get going. You know, come on, get up here where I'm at. And the young one is like, you know, you're always bullying me. You're always picking on me because I'm not where you are. And you've got to keep in mind, and I keep saying this over and over, I've been following God for 45 years. I do not expect anybody to be at the same place that I'm at. Because I know what it was like 25 years ago, 35 years ago for me. You know, when I was making dumb mistakes and dumb, dumb decisions, and I still make a lot of dumb mistakes and dumb decisions, but not quite as big and not quite as bad as they used to be, or as long. And I've shared with you many times, I, it took me six years to get out of one thing that God was trying to teach me. You know, I don't know if anybody's as hard-headed as I am. Six years to learn a lesson, pretty long time. Don't ever do that, it's not, no fun. No fun for you, no fun for those around you. Disciples, the disciples didn't learn anything for most of that time. But he says, then in verse 19, again, I say to you, if two of you agree in my name concerning anything, it will be yours. Again, the most important part of that statement is in my name. What glorifies Jesus? What lifts him up? Okay, and I've said this over and over. Just putting Jesus in the name of Jesus is not praying in his name. It is lifting him up and honoring him. And the greatest example I can, can think of is an ambassador. An ambassador to a country, to a foreign country, represents the country they are from. If they do something wrong, people will look at it and says, oh, your country is really a bad place. Look at the, you know, you're supposed to be the best, best representative of your country and you can't, you can't do things right. And in his name. God, I want a million dollars in Jesus' name is not mean I'm going to get a million dollars. Even though I tacked Jesus' name on there. Now, if I get a bunch of people together and go, God, this is ministry we want to do and it's going to cost us this much for the, for the building and this much for the property and this much for the vehicles we need and this much for the furniture and God, we need a million dollars and it's going to be to lift you up and minister to people. There's a greater chance you'll get that prayer. I think people... This one's misinterpreted, often misinterpreted. The name and claimants you, well, I put Jesus, I said in the name of Jesus, so that means I can get my Viper automobile because I really want a Viper God to, so I look good. You know, God goes, no, that, that, that doesn't necessarily glorify me. How's it going to glorify me? You know, if it's going to glorify me, you can have your Viper. If it's not, you're not going to have your Viper because it's not in the name of Jesus. Okay, very important that we understand the name of part. That's his, all of his reputation, all of his honor is involved in that. When we live by the name of Jesus, we're lifting Jesus up. We're honoring him. And if we're not, we're not doing it in his name. Well, they're not going to do everything in his, that lift him up and honor him, which is where grace comes in. Uh, but he says that when you ask in his name, then you'll get it. But that is literally... Like I say, we can both be asking for a million dollars. One says, I just want a million dollars so I can live good, you know, and have a nice house and nice cars. And the other's going, God, I want a million dollars so that I can build this whatever ministry. And it's going to cost me that much, God. It's going to cost this much for the buildings and this, that, and the other thing. That person's going to get their million dollars as long as they're truly, honestly praying in God's name and plan to use it that way. They'll get that million dollars. 
uh, because God says, oh, you want to lift me up? I'm going to be honored. It's, going to, it's for my glory? Great, here you go. George, uh, George Mueller, you know, 10,000 pounds a month in a time when 10,000 pounds was a lot of money. A lot of money. You know, they used to consider 10,000 pounds, you were, you were in the ultra-rich. He's spending that much a month on his orphanage, and he did not have any resources for it. He was depending on God to provide that income every month to take care of his kids as he saw them. You know, why did he get it given to him? Because he was honoring God, and he, he literally kept it down in paper. This is where every penny of that money went to. And he could tell you everywhere that that money went to, every, every gift that was given to the children, every gift that was given to the evangelism, and every gift that was given for Bibles. You know, we only think about the fact that he ran a mission, an orphanage, but he also ran three other missions organizations, and he kept all of their money separate. He never mixed the two. There were times when he had money for Bibles and no food for the kids, but he would not ever take the money for Bibles and borrow it for money for the kids and pay, even, even, though, even though he intended to pay it back, he never, ever would do that. And in his case, it was all one big pool of money, but he divided it by how it was given. One last, one last verse we'll cover because we're little, running a little. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Jesus says, if we as Christians are gathered together in his name, worshiping him, he's there. And I love that. I love it that when, when you get a couple Christians together and you start talking about God and you start feeling his presence, it's a wonderful thing. Uh, church I went to in Baltimore, people would talk about God all the time. And I've, I've shared this with you. You go to a birthday party, and somewhere during that birthday party, there'd be a Bible study. That was just the culture of that church. If, if Christians got together, there was a Bible study. Three or four people would meet each other at the grocery store they wouldn't have a formal Bible study, but they'd be talking about something they'd read or been taught. And they'd talk about God in the middle of the middle aisle of a, Bible, of, a, of a grocery store. The culture was such that God's word is important and we're going to talk about it when we come together. My hope is that our church can get that way. When we come together, do we say God's word's important? Do we say, we're going to look at his word at some point? Or if nothing else, talk about him, ask some questions about him. Do, do a question and answer period. And I think I'm going to start looking at doing more of those myself around here. Just answer questions. Because I enjoy doing it and I think it's good for the people to be getting their questions answered. Because everybody has questions about the Bible. I have questions about the Bible. I have people I go to for my questions. I don't have as many questions nowadays as I used to, but there are people I know that if I have a question, I go to them. And... My son, my oldest son, he asks me some very good questions sometimes. <laughs> Why? Because unfortunately, I taught him all the tools I, I know how to use, and he's discovered others that I don't know. So when he asks me a question, it's a pretty tough question. And it will challenge me. He's one of the few people that give me questions that are really challenging questions. And I love it. I love to get those questions that challenge me and say, you know what? I'm going to have to go look, at, look that one up. because I don't know the answer to that. Here's my gut feeling, but here I'm going to go look what the answer is. And where two or three are gathered, there he is. Are we lifting him up when we gather together in twos and threes? Do we talk about God in any way, shape, or form? Is he the center of our conversation ever? And that doesn't mean we go 365 days a year, 24 hours a day, talking about Jesus. 
Okay? Because then people will look at you, oh, <laughs> uh-oh, I'm going to turn the other way. Uh, all we're going to do is talk about the Bible. But does the Bible, does Jesus come up at some point in our conversation with people? Yeah. Sometimes it doesn't. Many people, it doesn't come up at all. It says, out of the treasure of our heart, we speak. And I've already shared with you guys, and you know I, I love to talk about God. I talk about God all over the prison. You know, whether, they, whether they open it or I open it, I talk about God. Usually they open it because I have to be a little more careful in the prison. But I take every door that's even, if you even peek in the door, I'm taking advantage of that. Isn't there a line that you can, I understand what you're saying, There is a line. You, you can talk about sports. You can talk about the, the latest book. You can talk about the news. But if that's all you ever talk about, you've gone too far the other way to try to keep from offending. Again, like I say, if, if you've got family members who aren't saved and every single time you see that family member, you're telling them about Jesus... You're, not going to, you're going to be persona non grata with that family member pretty quick, especially if they don't want to hear them. They're going to go, oh, no, you're not coming to my house because all you ever do is talk about Jesus. I'm not coming to your house because all you ever do is talk about Jesus. You can enjoy the football game. You can enjoy the car race. You can enjoy the hunting trip or the camping trip. But you've still got to lift Jesus up somewhere, somehow, especially if you're going on a camping trip. You're not going to stay silent for the whole weekend. If you've stayed silent the whole weekend you may have a problem. Okay, that's a little too much silence and not bringing God. Now, do you have to be bold and upfront? No, you know, let them catch you reading your Bible and devotions in the morning. Let them catch you praying over your food. You're not going to necessarily make them pray for their food with you, but you're going to pray for your food. You're going you're to be praying. You're going to do things that say, <coughs> I'm living for Christ. I'm going to do this for God. And they have to see that. Because if you never do anything for that, you've gone way too far the other direction. Then I know lots of Christians who've gone that way. Well, I've told my family once, twice, and I'm never telling them again. Okay, I don't love you. You can go to hell because I tried twice to save you. Now, am I every time I'm there going to open my mouth? No. Many times at my family picnics, I do not talk about God you know, to every single person, every time we go together as a family. Now, I'm always asked to pray, which they don't usually necessarily pray when I'm not there, but they know who I am. They know what I believe. And they know that if they ask me, they're going to, they're if they bring up the topic or they crack the door open, we're going we're gonna to talk about God. But I'm not necessarily going to be trying to cram it down their throat because in most of my cases, I've, my family knows definitely where I believe and they know the truth. So there is a point where you just say, okay, I'm backing off. But I lift up God in every way I can in front of them. I pray, I pray over my food. I'll, you know, if I'm camping with you know, family, they're going to see me going out and doing my devotions. I'll make it more open than I normally would. I might have, if I was with all Christians, I might have done my devotion in the tent, but I'm going to go sit out on the rock at the table and do my devotion so they know there's something going on. But you're right, there is a fine line. You know, if you're always talking about God, even Christians might get tired of talking to you. you know, well, gee, you know, I'm going to do nothing but hear about God again. Uh, Christians shouldn't get that place, but it could be possible that even a Christian goes, oh no, here he comes again. But I would encourage you, when, you, when you're doing your Bible studies, when you're doing your devotions, and you see something that really jumps out of the page, share it with other people. 
share what God is showing with you because it gives you an end to talk to people. You know, it's really one. You know what God showed me this morning? I was reading, I was reading in the book of whatever, and look what God showed me. And be able to share them. Should that be the way it is? No, it's not. I'm just, but I, I have a hard time. I don't know if I'd say a hard time. I just. You, know, you know how to fix that? Huh? You know how to fix that? No, not really. Start talking to people. Well, I, I talk to people a lot, but I, I guess there's probably a side of me I understand and believe me. Haven't I said that's who I used to oh, be? No. I, mean, I mean, I'm not just friendly. I'm really pretty much friendly to everybody. I, there's, there's, I used to go to church. I sat down in my seat, enjoyed the sermon, and went home. Yeah. And then I would tell people nobody ever talks to me. Well, everything I was doing was that nobody was going to talk to me because I, I went down, I sat down, and and I got up and I left. How did I stop doing that? God said, start talking to people. You know, when I first started talking to people, the hardest thing in the world was to even say hi. Because you say you're friendly. I wasn't even friendly. I did not like people. I did not want to be around people. I, did, I had no use for people. Okay? And God said, start talking. Start talking. And now it's much easier to talk. And you know what I found? Most people, if you talk to them, will talk to you. Now, and we hear all kinds of stories of people saying, well, this is the last day I'm going to go to church unless somebody talks to me. And I guess maybe I'll talk to somebody. And they turn around and talk to another guy that's in that same boat because he hadn't been talked to. And it's like they both talk to each other and they make a good friendship and they stay in the church. But both of them were saying the same prayer. God, if I don't have somebody talk to me today, I'm not, I'm not going to come to this church anymore because it's unfriendly. We can do many things that tell people don't talk to me. Don't come around me because... I'm not interested in talking to you, and our body language tells a lot of that. And by just being friendly, many times we can start learning to get out of that. And now, no matter where I go, I'm going to talk to people. You know, what's the worst I can do is not say anything to me. You know, especially if I'm, if I'm visiting, who really cares if, you know, John over there doesn't like me and I'm never going to be in this church again? You know, why? <laughs> Does that going to bother me? It's not the end of the world that he didn't say hi to me. You know, Jane over there didn't say hi to me when I said hello. Sometimes we do, we put too much importance on that. Not the social aspect. And there is an importance to the social aspect, but once we start stepping out of our comfort zone into something else, it'll grow. God will give us the people to talk to. He'll, he'll open the doors. And for me... It was a hard thing because I never learned the skills of making friends. I really didn't because I literally, I grew up not caring about people. I was the new kid in town, always. I was the new kid in school, always. And it took me a long time to even make a friend. And usually by the time I made a friend, we were moving. After about three or four times of doing that, I just finally said, the heck with this. It's not worth the effort because as soon as I make a friend, we're moving. Okay. And God had to change a real heavy attitude in my life that people are important, especially if I was going to be a pastor, which he told me I was going to be a pastor. Uh, and it's amazing, the more I studied, the more I'm finding that many pastors are introverts. They really don't like people. I don't think I had a real, real strong concept of how to, to get friends and stuff like that. You know, just start being, that way, just start saying hi. There's only about five or six people that I feel that I could call at any time, anywhere, and 
talk. I mean, literally, anytime, anywhere. It could be 3 o'clock in the morning. They might not appreciate a phone call like I wouldn't, but I would, I would know that I could call them. Well, just if they, if they called me at 3 o'clock in the morning, I'd go, okay, do we? And in that case, once I wake up, I'm going to be saying, do, you, do we need to meet for coffee or something? Because you need something. You need something. It's <laughs> well, it took me four or five years to develop those relationships with a handful of people that I can do that with. In my case, I know what I did. I just said that it's not worth it. And God had to change my attitude. And it took a lot to work. But the biggest thing is start just being friendly. Start talking to people. Being more outgoing. And then purpose. Purpose to find somebody in your life that you can develop a friendship with, you, with that, like that. For the, for the six people in my life, it has been times when I've just got together with them and met with them every, every week. And it usually took two or... Men, men take a long time to develop these friendships. You know, women get two women together and they usually know everything about their, their lives on both sides, you know, in, in minutes. Men usually take, you know, a long time because, number one, we want to feel that we can trust that person. And after, after three to four months, we might let something slip that is somewhat embarrassing and see what happens to it. And then as we get confident, you know, and it usually takes a year or two, believe me, I've been in many groups with men, and it takes time for men to open up. Lord, we just thank you, thank you for this day. We thank you for how much you love and care for us. We ask you to go with us as we go about our business. Give us the opportunity to share you with others and just to learn to walk more and more with you and to, to be bold with our testimony with you in front of others. In Jesus' name, amen.